I was so, so career focused. Very, very quickly I realized, wow, I'm in the lion's den here. But on the first Monday of every month, I used to do a wine dinner for regulars and I used to really take Devlin's to another level. You're there waking up every day worried about service. And you do. On every single service, I walk the car park, the garden, in the front door, the customer journey. Chef Table Podcast by Hotel and Restaurant Times. Welcome to the Hotel and Restaurant Times podcast. In this issue, we meet with the effervescent Gary O'Hanlon. This proud Donegal native is very driven and passionate about his career. From his early days in Rossapena to the present, he is continually fine-honing his experience, always willing to challenge himself, break the boundaries. He is well known for his TV appearances and is a regular on RTE and Virgin Media. He is the chef in charge of the starters for the popular The Restaurant Programme. His experiences brought him all over the world, and he is currently executive chef at the Chateau de Condor in France. I hope you enjoy this episode and kindly share with your colleagues and friends. Thanks for listening. Okay, good morning. We're here with Gary O'Hanlon. Gary, where are you from originally? Uh, Remelton in County Donegal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, beautiful Donegal. And what brought you into the culinary arena? Um, always, always wanted to be a chef. The only other thing I would have been would have been a pilot. Um, I mean, I was good at school. I enjoyed school. Mammy was quite strict about school, but she didn't really have to be. With Definitely not with me and my older brother anyway, you know, because we, we, we got the head stuck in the homework early and we all I was interested in was football, football, football and how quick I could get out and the quicker homework was done the quicker we got out so we always got stuck into it but uh, I just had an interest my aunt Det is the executive chef of the Rosa Pena and Dinings where I started my career and I'd always hoped to get in there for a summer job and I was just about old enough the day my junior cert finished to start washing the pots there. But obviously by then, I'm now in third year and I'm very much nailed and dialed in that I'd already realized that I need a few years experience. At that time, to get into Killy Beggs, there was going to be zero chance of me getting in without having experience. So even the first day of secondary school at St. Unions, I remember uh, my next door neighbor, Tank, we put on a 50 quid bet, which I forgot about, but he coughed up the night of my 21st and he had said to me, we put this bet on the first day at St. Eunice when you said you were going to be a chef. And I was like, nobody knows what they want to be when they, when they, when they finish school. And I says, well, I do. And that's what I'm going to be. And, and as I say, like being a pilot was the only thing that for a period maybe was veering me away from that. But I would say that all the way through first year, second year, I was like, right, well, what do I need to do so that whenever I finish my leaving, which was always on the cards, there was never going to be a question of me not doing that. But I just want to know what I need to be doing to make sure and guarantee that I get into Kelly Beggs. Because uh, obviously I had my aunt in the business and I was able to ask questions and and know that, you know, there's going to be 15, 16, 1700 applications for 100 spots. Killy Beggs used to have a thing called October Talk. So after four weeks, I think the least performing 10 
were, were moved on. So 90 got to stay. So it was serious business back then. I mean, it's quite sad now, like that, you know, culinary colleges, a lot of them are kind of begging out for, for people to come to them. You know what I mean? It's a very different world we're in today, but that's where it was back then. And, and, you know, you had to have your I's dotted and T's crossed to make sure that like I was on a career path and the home was going to get in the way of it, you know? So you're very focused. I mean, you obviously had your, 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 your focus on that. And academically, you obviously were very good at the, at the, yeah. at the, at the books. Yeah, very much. And look, like any any chef, I mean, we're in Carton House today, like, and Ooh. I'm pretty sure if Gary didn't know how to put two and two together, you, you there's no way you could work in a place like this. You know, I've been a director of a company as well. And, and look, without a shadow of a doubt, sadly or not or otherwise you know when you get to the top sometimes you find yourself maybe cooking a wee bit less depending on what role that you're in but if you're not able to control the boardroom have the etiquette of a boardroom um, manage staff manage rotors manage budgets understand costings and understand the cost of sales you'll you'll be moved on very very quickly from from the big jobs and the big boy jobs you know what i mean so yeah for sure education thankfully was a big part of my life and, and I kept a focus on that. And, and even still to this day, like I'm, whether I'm in bigger businesses or bigger companies or small, I always try to surround myself with people that are strong in certain fields, you know, and that's, if, if anybody listening to this thinks that they can do it all, you can't. Um, because, you know, that's something I've always done. You know, I don't, I don't have a team of center forwards everywhere I work. I always have people that are good in certain situations and always make sure you've got that support. And all these big jobs that I've had over the years from Boston to Ireland, I, you know, the team has been a big part of it for me and all, whatever successes I've had, um, they'd all be a big part of that too. Okay. So give us a little bit of a, you know, I, I was, I suppose a chronological view of what happened when you when you did your Killy Beg stint, and you you obviously got your your credentials. Yeah. Can you remember your first job? Yeah. Well, my first job post college um, was in East Belfast and around the Good Friday Peace Talks. Would you believe um, I had been living in Dundalk on on my last placement? And funny enough, like growing up in a predominantly Protestant Remelton and. Mm-hmm you know 60 70 percent of your friends being protestant me being catholic and being very close to the troubles you know growing up in the 80s and 90s in Donegal, it's a bit different to people living in longford where i live now and further down like we're, we were 20 minutes from Derry, um but still a million miles away if that makes sense but i realized that i had a very northern accent when i was in dundalk and then i met a guy from dundalk who was the head chef of one of the restaurants the scala in the Hastings own Stormont Hotel. So he offered me a job, and at that time they'd won the best four-star hotel in the British Isles. It was really good. They had a really high-end fine dining restaurant in McMaster's, a massive conference and banqueting business. And then you had the La Scala Bistro that probably even to that time was the best food I'd been exposed to. But you're doing 200 to 300 covers a night. So they offered me a good, a junior, like a job, a chef to party job up there. And I took that. And very quickly, I went from, from being a northern bastard to a Fenian <laughs> bastard. And I was like, Jesus Christ, this is insane, you know. But I was so, so career focused. And I said I'd go for at least a year and do whatever. But I mean, very, very quickly, I realized, wow, I'm in the lion's den here. It was tough. I was made junior sous chef very quickly. Because obviously... You know, I'd had a lot of years of grounding in the Rosapena. I was very professional. It had, it had been coached into me from an early day. Kelly Beggs was incredibly strict. Anybody that knows Kelly Beggs and knows of the reputation, I mean, there was no 
it, it was absolutely like you're either performing or you're out. There was just no gray area in Killy Beggs and the teaching and the training and the standard of student was insane. So I had maybe better caliber than what I maybe imagined, which was good, but I still was in there and I was focused and Stephen Isaac was executive chef, was a lovely man, was always really good to me. Like they made me junior suit quite quickly. And then things started turning a little bit sour in there at that time. It was a tough kitchen, you know, behind the scenes. That's probably the toughest kitchen I worked in. Not like abuseful wise, but yeah, I suppose if you really were to break it down and break down the words and the things that were said to you at 18, 19, it would probably make the hair stand on the back of your neck. But look, as far as I'm concerned, I'm a young Irish Catholic and I'm the one that made the decision to go into that lion's den because I identified that the hotel's good, the chefs are good. I'm going to learn from like from banqueting and conferencing. I'm going to be learning bistro, high volume, whatever, and then McMaster's and fine dining. And I had three amazing things there to really latch on to and to learn and to add to my resume under one roof. And fucked if I was going to let a little bit of you know, abuse about being a Fenian bother me because it didn't bother me and I'm, I'm a good fighter. So I quite often, I you know, as bad as it is, like I had to stand up for myself a couple of times, like and bust heads and, you know, it was normal. You know what I mean? I was like, you'd have a row and you move on. Like, but I wouldn't be able to do that now. Like I wouldn't be able to work in that environment. I turned 44 there the other day and I'm thinking, Jesus Christ, like the things that, didn't bother me at 18 or 19 i'd be like oh god like i I couldn't I suppose you know more and you learn more and you become more evolved and you're like oh jesus this is normal you become mature well you become mature but i'm like going like jesus like or even mature in the sense of like like i can't be letting people talk to me like this like this is this is mental but you knew you knew no different like it was just like no 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 no. i said i'm staying a year i'm going to get through whatever's coming my way and sure look it was what it was and I don't know if it scares you or if it builds you for for the rest of life and tough stuff. But, I mean, I loved my time there as well at Stormont, you know what I mean? But it definitely wasn't for the faint of heart, like, you know what I mean? But And from there, I moved on to Galway. I went down there to be a chef de partie in the Saltill Hotel in the Murray family. And after a, a few days... Michael Murray said to me, look, you know, you're the best chef we've come across. Goes like, I, like there was a girl in there that went to college with me by coincidence. Mm-hmm. And he goes, look, I want you to be the head chef. And, like, and I was like 19 or 20. I says, no, 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 no. And he goes, look, you're running the place fine. We have a good team of chefs and bring in a few of your own. So for those couple of years, I was like, look, maybe going to move to Australia or whatever. It turned out a year and a half later, it ended up being America and Boston. But I was the head chef, a very young head chef of the Salt Hotel, and that was a real learning experience, and I found it easy. That, yeah, because that would have been a very much a ghost destination for a lot of holidays. Oh, it, I mean, that was a busy, busy hotel. We had huge wedding business. The restaurant was—it was just like a everyday four-star hotel. Like it was, and the Galway Bay next door was being built around that time. It was being built as as I worked there, so uh, and that would have been the talk of the. The, the west at the time like this big yellow mm. mansion of a hotel like that right on the waterfront in salt hill so yeah I had a great time i was sort of the last head chef i'd say the murray family had i moved to boston in 99 and they sold it not long mm. after um but look it was a decision i made and i saved and look i was earning a bit of money i probably should have gone to work on maybe ramsey or somebody at that stage like i probably or kevin thornton i probably had a but I just, there was just this thing in me that I, 
I was, I don't know if I was afraid or what it was that you have the reputations or, or what, I don't know, but there was definitely a moment there where I thought like, look, you maybe should be going somewhere at Michelin level now and learning. But look, years later, I made a decision to take a step back to learn and mm. it, it's all worked out okay. Like, but there was definitely that period where I thought I probably you should. Certainly. Yeah. Look, I, I, you know, maybe I took the money instead of taking the right position, but we wanted to live in Galway and, you know, the girl I was seeing at the time and we, you know, that's after the, the turmoil of Belfast, Galway seemed like paradise, you know, and it was. And then, and then it was on to Boston and, and opening the first restaurant for Tom Devlin, which is now 10. Right. But, but I remember the first one and... You know, Tom put his life savings. It opened the day that his first son was born, Conan. Um, I often think of it now, like going, "Geez, what was like?" I've got three kids now, and I think, like, what must his life have been like at that time? But you know, really tough place to do business, America. Like, you know, you've got two weeks if your numbers aren't right. You've got two weeks to fix them. You're all the time under pressure. Now, I was a really young head chef in there, but Tom. Was an incredibly intelligent mind, numbers wise, a brilliant menu writer, very very hard on me. And when I mean hard, like I mean like he saw that I had potential, and you know, no, 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 you can do that better. You can do that so better. He challenged you and brought so the best. Very, out. he very very much challenged me, but he he taught me that you know, re- like the food is it's just a basic requirement at the highest level that the food's going to be good. Like he really taught me about all the other things from like if anybody ever work with me in Viewmount House and now at the Condor in France they'll know like that I drive people mental like what's the car park like what's the menu boards like is the, is the lights straight or the picture straight or the table straight you know the wine glasses watermarks knives forks water like every day every single day I sit in the dining room at every corner off it, whatever way the light comes in for 10 years one day I was there a week shy of 10 years and every single service, I walked the car park, the garden, in the front door, the customer journey, every single day without fail. Every single day in Viewmount House, I would have sat at every corner of the room. And yeah, you might miss stuff, but I tell you, you're not going to miss an awful lot. And then the staff start doing that and they start saying, and you're not talking, there's no shouting, you're just sitting there and going, this picture's a wee bit bent, let's just straighten this up, this looks. And you know, a customer sits in a room it's like we're in Carton House here now. We just walked from reception right through into a private room. We went by three, four rooms, and my eyes scanned everything. There was nothing out of place. There was nothing out of place. Like, there's a lot of really good, shrewd people that have walked these corridors before we woke up this morning to make sure that all these things and all these tiny things... I mean, behind us here, there's a row of water bottles and not one of them is offline. Am I right? Yeah. yeah. So I saw that when I walked in the door. And it's all these tiny, tiny little things. I'm going, like, that's that's class. That's class. But these are the things that you need to see. And Tom Devlin would have taught me that. You know what I mean? And I had a few harsh lessons in that learning process, thinking that I had all my eyes dotted and T's crossed and he often fucking tore me apart like and said listen you know you're in here at five o'clock and the music's right and everything's right he goes but there was a dump of snow nobody can get in the front door and me wondering why brunch was a bit quiet to kick off and you know girls hadn't opened the doors they're afraid and i'm like oh my god and that was a really dark day i always remember this one i won't get into the nitty-gritty of it 
But, you know, I'd had a bad weekend the week before and I thought, right, fucking, like, no more mistakes. We'll make sure everything's right. And a blizzard came in. And, you know, in America, when the weather comes in in half an hour, you can go from a beautiful dry pavement to, like, a foot of snow with a drift. And nobody could get in the front door. And I'm in there ready to go, ready to do two or three hundred covers for brunch. And customers can't get in the door. And he he didn't leave much of me now that day. But it was a, it was a lesson that you got to just keep it keep it going and it never happened again you know what i mean and it, it's true though like but it's you know he he readied me for a career and you know I'll, I'll be lying if i said like at the time i'd be like going come on my fuck's sake like just tell me i'm doing well some days you know what i mean but in 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 the restaurant business every single day is a new day like it doesn't matter how good you were yesterday now the other side about that is when you had that bad day we had that discussion. We had that learning experience. And the next day, me and him, like, we're still best of buddies and we move on. There's absolutely no lingering on it. You can't linger on a day like that that was bad. And that's definitely something that I that I took as well. Like that, you know, when you get a really good team and you rock on and things go wrong, look, it's grand. But, like, moving on, it's out of the way. That's all straighten our shoulders and lift our head again and then crack on. We can't fix it anymore. Like, it just let's not do it again. Yeah, yeah. You know? That day is gone. Oh, aye, aye. But tell me something just about the food in Boston. How, how was it? Because they've, they've, they've been very much into the seafood and clam chowder and that sort of stuff. Look, it all depends where you work, Cyril. You know, it all depends where you are. The one thing I would say is that growing up in the Rosapenna, like, you know, farm to fork was something we always did. I mean, I sit in the Irish Food Council now. I'm a proud member of Eurotokes. We've there's been a big wave since I came back from the States fifteen years ago about, you know, local buying or whatever, but that's all I ever knew. It's not something anybody ever talked about. Back in the eighties or nineties in Ireland, they were like, Oh, well, sure, what other way are you gonna do it? You know what I mean? Granted a few fancy restaurants came into town and buying something from Paris or Russia mm-hmm. or Europe was maybe deemed to be a better mushroom or a better this or a better that. But f- for me and my career and where I came from buying off the logs down the road and carrying lobster boxes across the beach at Downing's Beach into the kitchen was normal. Scallop boxes coming from Jerry up in Cranford was normal. Do you know what I mean? That's just what we did. And in Boston, we used to buy off a load of wheat, different local suppliers and different ones. And and not because it was local buyers, because like, well, it's really good. We would find it and we would identify it and we would buy it and we would use it and it was really good. So Devlin's would have been casual fine dining is how it was sort of you know i was lucky enough that you know i didn't fall into the cooking in an irish bar type nonsense when i was in i mean i would have done that here and there for maybe extra money in the early days when i was saving for sports cars because i'm i'm <laughs> car mad and i might want a bit of extra you could earn a lot of money yeah. you know doing a day or two in your days off and huh. all of a sudden you've got a mustang six months later or a, a gt uh, Salika, which yeah, is what yeah. I was after right away, and then a spider <laughs> after Fast and Furious. So, yeah. all I had to worry about back then was fast cars and working hard, you know. But um, as far as the restaurants were concerned, um, Boston, obviously, with its connections to Maine and being on the coast, would have you know the New England clam chowder. I mean, you wouldn't have a restaurant without their version mm-hmm. of a New England clam chowder or a seafood chowder or mm-hmm. whatever you would have. So, yeah you know, the lobster roll and all that sort of stuff. Like, so in, in America, you kind of have to, especially when you're in that casual fine diner bracket, you almost have to have a dish that's going to please the Harvard student, but also the Harvard professor. Yeah. 
Do you know what I mean? You've got the different budgets walking in under your roof and make sure that somebody can have like something for $14 or $18 that'll sustain them and it's amazing and it's nice. But equally, somebody might come in and have a, a starter, a main course, a dessert, and they can go to whatever levels. The other thing that I would have done there, and I'm pretty sure, and, I, and I'm not, nobody's ever been able to show it to me yet or prove me otherwise, but I used to do wine dinners. And I'd never heard of a wine dinner. I'd never seen a wine dinner. But on the first Monday of every month, I used to do a wine dinner for regulars. And I used to really take the evidence to another level mm-hmm. on those. And as a young head chef, I really benefited from that being school for me. So I had two or three weeks every month to get myself ready on my spare time. So Tom was like, you know, you got to read and read and read and read and constantly, constantly constantly at me to be learning all the time so i used to do maybe like a taste of scandinavia a taste of cape cod a taste of france a taste of germany a taste of austria a taste of ireland whatever it would be and i would pick that cuisine or dishes and go through it the early days of the internet and googling and books and reading and trying to find words epicurious.com became my bible and you know we had regulars that would come like a few, maybe once a week or whatever, but then we had this core cult following for those wine dinners, and they were amazing. Because obviously in the casual fine dining spectrum, I'm a young chef, I've got notions of myself, I just want white tablecloth, really, really fancy. But that wasn't exactly the environment, but for that one night, it was very, it was fine dining and nothing else. Now every other night the food was amazing, it was nice, but I wasn't dishing out like little pan pasta dishes or flatbreads or a pizza and a cocktail thing or whatever. But, you know, I learned an awful lot about myself and Tom pushed me to, to big levels. And look, it has sustained me all through the rest of my career, I would say. You know what I mean? And I'm very much find myself sounding like Tom an awful lot mm. as the years. You know, it's, it's almost like ourselves. We grow up and you hear your parents and yourself. Mm-hmm. Well, I hear him when I'm in the kitchen or I'm on the chateau floor and walk mm. in the chateau. I talk like Tom Devlin and I think like Tom Devlin and I act. And Mr. Casey at the Raza Pena was exactly the same. Just excellence from the minute you wake up till you go to bed to make the customer experience feel special. It's all about attention to detail, isn't it? Yeah. You know, if if you're looking after the little details all the time, people don't muck around with the big details. Like the, the, big, the big things take care of themselves. Like the water that's behind me that I know is in a perfect line mm. and all the other paintings as we mm. walk down and all the other tiny little things, they're all sharp, straight, whatever. You don't need to worry about the table being <clears throat> being offline here. There's a beautiful oval table mm. in front of you and I in the center of this room. There's two statues above a beautiful fireplace. They're absolutely centered. You don't need to worry about the lamp in the corner or the coat mm. hanger that's in the corner behind me being mm. offline because... All the little things are right. The big things then take care of themselves because people know that there's people walking around and going, Jesus, Gary's going to see that or Nile's going to see that or somebody's going to see that. Fix it, fix it, fix it, you know? Mm. And the big stuff takes care of itself, you know? Mm. And that's, but that's, you have a huge amount of moving parts in a restaurant or a bar or a hotel in particular. So many, like, customers move stuff customers lift stuff and you know when you come on stuff and you move it and change there's nobody going hunting who moved that it's going to be out of place but just that everybody is constantly 
on the floors a wee bit dirty up there, grab the corridors, whoever, bang, 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 mm. bang, bang, bang. Just all, you're always keeping on top. Think of your own house with one or two adults and one or two kids. It can be upside down in the space of an hour. A hotel times four or five hundred, and that's what you have walking around all the time. But it is important that all the wee details are looked after mm-hmm. from the minute you wake up to the minute you go to bed. That's what you're paid to do. Right. Well, you, your time with you, man, then, when you, when did you come back from Boston? I came back from Boston in 2005 and I actually originally looked at Viewmount House, you know, mm-hmm. I was looking to work around the Midlands and... Were you married at this stage? No, or? but I'd been going out with a girl from Athlone and that's the only reason I ever left America and that's mm-hmm. what had me kind of around the Midlands, there was nobody, there was nowhere really in Athlone good enough mm-hmm. that I wanted to work in and I'd seen this ad in the indoor around January of '05, and I looked at Viewmount but when I drove in I went... Like something happened, my gut, I went, oh my God, this is the one. Because, you know, I then got there and the restaurants and converted stables for anybody who's been to, to Viewmount or VM at mm. Viewmount House. But I said to James, like, look, you know, when people come to sit down and read the menu, like, you know, you can't have people walk from the house in high heels over the stones into the, into the building where mm. the restaurant is. So he wanted to open it, and I said, well, you can open it all you want, but it won't be with me. And, you know, they offered me the job, and I says, no, like, it's not perfect. And I, you know, probably was, not, I was 20, at that time, 26 or 27. Pretty ballsy for us. Yeah, I know. Old. I know when I think back now, <laughs> but I did, I said to him, he goes, look, it's not going to be perfect. But, like, I, I was right, and he then built the suites, the seven suites and connected the house and added a bar and it was all became interconnected with the old salvage part. So all the extension blended into the the old Georgian house. And then I got a call on the 11th of June. I remember the date, like I was actually leaving a job. I'd gone and I'd worked here and there for the for the couple of years thereafter, the Galway Bay accent. Mm. I, I kind of ended up being a sous chef in there after my ties from when mm. it was being built. I had a good couple of years there under Dan Murphy, uh, the GM there, director now. And then I got a call about this place and I was like, I was like, well, who are you ringing me? Like, so I goes, no agent is my number. And I hung up and I went, how do I know that name? And I was like, Jesus, it goes, that's that place in Longford that I really loved three years ago. So I rang them, Beryl answered and I met them. And I never met Beryl the first time I went down. So I went down and I met them and I was like, oh, wow it's all done it's all connected so we were there and we'd had a chat or whatever and Beryl had said to me years later like that loads of chefs in the area come looking for work but James is a big man United fan and so am I and we spent a lot of time talking about United the first time we met and and I think he he as much as I was set in viewment he was set on me right. and he says no I like the Donegal guy yeah. and I just by coincidence ended up back at in front of them and talking to them young free single Ooh. 29 at this Ooh. stage and uh and yeah that was it yeah. i i spent a few months there i unwrapped every knife fork sauce plate saucer how, would, how, you, how would you have been involved in with say, the choose of the cutlery and the cutlery and all that well james's <laughs> best friend would have been a main guy in waterford crystal so Ooh. james had a really good eye and they'd gone to Frankfurt to a big show and they had bought like one of the only places at the time that had Narumi bone china plates. I won't even tell you what they spent mm-hmm. on them, but it was tens and tens and tens of thousands. So I was more than happy with the boxes that had arrived. Um, but I opened like Viewmount. Like Christmas time, were you? Yeah, but like I remember we opened Viewmount and I, I, bought, I was buying ice cream, kind of giving it a few 
minutes to kind of soften, tipping it out into one container and then using the plastic tubs as bowls. I mean, we didn't have the money to buy a, an ice cream machine. Mm. That, that took us two or three months. I was really annoyed waiting to that time because I wanted everything to be ours. But there was no money coming in. I bought the minimum amount of tongs and spoons and tubs and you name it. It was enough to just get by. We would buy stuff that might come in a hard plastic tub. Everything. Get the label off it. Keep that. It's a container for storage. Like for the first few months in Viewmount, it was like a fridge of mixy matchy. Like I like everything to look the same and look mm. neat. But I was like, no, let's make money before we spend money. And I, tr I treat everywhere I work like I own it. Mm -hmm. It's a real big thing for me. I never waste money that's not mine. It I sounds never, like you invest yourself. I really do. But the other thing I would say is, you know, I've been working and mucking around here and there for years. When I went to Viewmount that time, I was sad in Ireland. Like I wasn't happy. I had spent a real lot of years in America. I'd just got into one or two cookbooks. I was starting to kind of get a little bit of a reputation there. Get talking to chefs that I really looked up to. I was starting to like make my way in a really big bold world for a young Irish cook. And then I left. So I was just really disillusioned with Ireland, you know. So when I went to Viewmount in 2008, I said this is the last fucking job in Ireland. This is it. You know, it says I'm, I goes, I'm maybe just a wee bit more beans about me. I goes, like, I just find the standards aren't brilliant or whatever it'll be. I'm like, you know, I just wasn't that happy. You know, it's very and hard. Yeah, and you think that was part of the Celtic tigery or that there was that sort of vulgarity and people didn't understand? Oh, I don't, I, I, I'd never really lived here through the Celtic mm. tiger. The Celtic tiger had been and not gone, but we were in the, the tail end of it when I mm. came back. Like, But all those years, the Celtic tiger, I was in a bigger... I was on a bigger, I was in the mm. Celtic Lion in Boston, you know what I mean? Because, but that's America and that's American money mm. and it's big, that's mm. big territory financially if you're good, you know mm. what I mean? But definitely Ireland became a very different country. I mean, I left on the punt and I came back on the Euro, you know what I mean? Mm. All that sort of happened in them five, six years that I was gone. But, um, but I definitely sat myself down. And as I, I often talk to Frankie Mallon and Ampore Moore, we have a one-man mm. board meeting with ourselves every now and again. But I I said, no more fucking around. Put your head down. I don't give a shit about any other chef mm. in the country. Mm. I never did anyway. Mm -hmm. Like I respect a lot of them, but I couldn't give a I couldn't give mm. honest to God. Mm. I'm always happy for their success, but I pay no attention to them. I mm. couldn't give an iota about mm. anybody else. But I said Get in here, get a good team. Don't give a fuck about everyone that's telling you not to go to Longford to work. Mm. This place is beautiful. Put your head down, no messing around, and just fucking cook as best as you can. Mm. If Nevin can do it in Black Lion, I can do it in Longford. That's what I always told myself. I was like, everybody was telling me Longford's a shithole. I love the place. Mm. I still live there to this day. It, the people are amazing. It's great. And I said, I am on the main road from Dublin to fucking Sligo, the main road from Dublin to Westport. It branches off. The N4 becomes the N5 in Longford. This is an unbelievable opportunity. I'm in the middle of Ireland in a place like this. It has to work. And James and Beryl, the only stipulation with them was I was like going, don't get in my way. 
I goes, if I'm wasting money or uh, you think I am, James is an accountant by trade, I'll sit down and I will always have an answer. <laughs> I will always be able to tell you why I bought something, what it cost, why we're using it. My ego will never, ever get in the way in that menu. I fucking guarantee you. And we just started doing things really right and the reputation started growing. But obviously the recession was hitting as well. But the benefit we had is we were never open in the Celtic Tiger there was never a, a trail of sales that they saw that was now different. Mm. We opened on the 2nd of August, 2008. Lehman Brothers had just crashed or was about to or whatever it was. It was all happening. You couldn't get a seat for nine months. And then every weekend was full and we weren't greedy. We started, the menu was 49. I took years to go to 53. It took a few more years to go to 55. And then it went mm. to 60. But it took 10 years to go from 49 right. to 60. I think it was maybe 65 the last time it was open. But, um, and you know, it, it, it was sold then there at Christmas. Mm. Like I left in 2018, but we won rest of the year. And like in, mm. a month or two before I left, I remember being at Georgina Campbell Awards and mm. Georgina gave me Gary O'Hanlon, James Carney and Beryl Carney, the, mm. the Georgina Campbell Award for services to Irish food. Mm. That was the, one of the best days of my career because mm. I hold Georgina Campbell in such high esteem. It mm. it meant so much because mm. I was sitting there knowing that I'd just been headhunted a few months earlier. It was still a few months away from me leaving. We had got that letter to go and obviously you know you've won something because mm. uh, Georgina's awards only take a few people. And I couldn't, I'm not going to say I don't care about awards because they really made a difference to the morale of the team. Mm -hmm. And we won Best Restaurant in Ireland and, and we were the Michelin Guide and mm. maybe should have got a star in 2013 and had conversations with Michelin about, about that. But it was a special place and those type of days mattered. But it was on that day because I knew I was going to be telling them a few days later that I was leaving. I knew I'd ran my course. I was there 10 years. This was a fitting ending yeah. for the whole thing that the three of us were all together on a on a beautiful award, all named for that very reason that I remember on that day mm. going back for that interview or chat uh, before going there in 2008 and stopping a guard on the old Dublin Road and asking him where Viewman was and he says he never heard of it. Mm. And this was this has been in my mind for years mm. to then be sitting there and Georgina saying these things about Beryl and about James and about myself. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I met Annette there at Table 6 at the Red Wall. Mm. Our kids have been christened there. We got married there. It really, really has a close place in my heart. And I'll tell you something now that nobody knows. Nobody knows outside of our house. Know. And and I because you're a good guy, Cyril. But but the new owners, you know, Ooh. all the staff left. They, you know, some Ooh. guys went in there and a lot Ooh. of all the, all my staff left. A lot of them are still working for Ooh. me now in France. I mean, I never took them out of Viewmount. They only Ooh. left after James and Beryl sold it. But um but I will be I will be going back to do a wee bit of help and it's being re-roofed at the minute, the restaurant has been refurbished a good bit and I will take up a consultancy role in time mm. there. I mean, I'll never, I'll not be leaving France. France will be, mm. it will, will be my job, but, but the new owners are lovely, beautiful people, mm. really, really nice. And they've tapped into the gras that I have mm. for the place. And, uh, and maybe you're able to hear that mm. the way I talk about it, but it's important to long. It's like a love affair you have with this. Well, it's, um, it, 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 I worked myself to the bone in it mm. nearly to the point where I nearly did too much but look you can never say you did too much but 
you know, the connection with Annette and having met Annette there and, you know, being married there, what it did for my career. I mean, yeah, you could say, no, I worked hard. I, I did for my career what I did myself, but but it's the friends as well. I mean, I've got Wojciech that was one of the guy I wanted as my first sous chef. Mm-hmm. He's the head chef of one of the best places in Auschwitz now in Poland where he's from. He still works for me in France when he can. He's now teaching as well in a college. He used to come with me to all my demos and all my college mm-hmm. chats. Sammy, Sammy left for me to go to Baxter Story for a while in the few years before mm-hmm. France. I worked there. And she comes out to France every now and again to work on patisserie and, and training and stuff. And she came for two weeks and she stayed for eight years. Daniel was my eventual sous chef. He worked with me for seven or eight years, nine years as well. He does a few bits of me every now and again. Adam is my sous chef in France. He was my last ever hire in Viewmount, a young cook Ooh. from Mullingar, Kinnegad. He went to college in Athlone and was my last hire. I, f- I love him like a mm. like a brother. Mm. And uh, he came from Viewmount and, and he stayed on for a year after I left. But, you know, he works behind the scenes on the restaurant with me. He's my assistant on the restaurant, but he's my sous chef at the Condor. Um, they're all close. Esmeralda that would have done dishes and food prep. She's done a few bits for me over the years. And uh, and then Olga, there was a restaurant manager in my time. She runs the floor now in the Chateau in, in the mm. Condor in France. So the, the day that James and Beryl left, she came for the last few weeks of the season and I hired her. Mm. So what I have now in all the core places in the Condor, all were friends and friends for life and mm. good people that still have followed me and we work together. And, you know, and for those that don't work with us now, there's a lot of them. I mean, there's that, that girl that worked for Jameson and PR for mm. years. She's in different stuff now. There's girls in medicine. There's some working for Abbott in the lab. Mm-hmm. God, if I think about all the different staff over the years that went from secondary school and yeah. college to now young mothers and families of their own and they're growing up. But it was a special period. Mm. Um, so look, you know, I I, I am going to to try and help with recruitment mm. there and mm. you know it's a great place to be it's a lot cheaper to live than Dublin mm. I think it's got mm. that in its corner a good young girl or mm. guy going in there now like at 20 in their mid 20s or late 20s or early I don't care if they're 50 mm. if they're good enough mm. and they have the energy but whenever it reopens it'd be amazing to have mm. somebody really good and uh, and look, anybody listening, hit yeah. me up on LinkedIn because I will yeah. be recruiting a team to put in there and let them just let them do what they what they can do. Right, right. And tell me something. You know, you talk about the food and everything else. Did they have their own gardens in 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 Viewmount or? Yeah, we did. Yeah, but J- James loves his flowers and he loves his trees and he loves his shrubs. So we it was a challenge was it? Well, we <laughs> took a fairly decent chunk of the right. five or six areas that wrap around Viewmount. But what we did was we grew some quite special stuff. We built a beautiful glass house and, you know, chilies and peppers and tomatoes and stuff like that. But what I would have done with them is, is tried to use them on the breakfast menu. But um, mm. I would have always had a squash patch. I loved pumpkins and I loved, mm. excuse me, working with pumpkins. So I always had a bit of a pumpkin patch and stuff like that. And then I, I would have like a ravioli dish. So like one pumpkin could last me a week. Right. You know, that kind of a way. Mm-hmm. So I would dra- I would leave it in the garden so people could see it as long mm. as possible and that we were using it. And I would have certain things on the menu that was dedicated to certain little areas. But I had the most unbelievable yield of gooseberries every year. Right. 
uh, red currants and and raspberries, but definitely the gooseberries. Like so, we used to break them down, and we used to um, you know do lovely tarts with them on like on on a Sunday for lunch and things like that. There, Sammy would go out and we'd pick a day where two or three chefs would go out and we'd just like take the buckets when everything was right. right. And yeah, I mean, I'm not going to say we're a forager, but I was like going, you know, like we used to just call it picking berries. You yeah. know what I mean? Like so. We just go picking berries. I'm, yeah. good, I, I'm really into that acidic flavor, so I love gooseberries. Anyway, now obviously you have to manipulate them with so much sugar mm-hmm. to make them palatable, but we always had a brilliant yield of berries there, and uh, and then the hard herbs. Obviously, they would grow anywhere. Like so, like you know, the the thyme and the rosemary with loads of it, and then soft herbs, fennel, fennel herb, cabbage. So yeah, different years, different stuff, but almost always squashes and lots of lettuce. We always had lots of lettuce that we would use. In different little parts of the house but you know you had to be wise we were quite busy i mean i could have emptied a whole section of the garden if i used everything in one dish so it was all about boxing clever and also creating that nice link with people staying and they might have had rooms that looked over the front lawns and over the japanese garden or over the back lawns and over the orchard <laughs> and then the apples were the same patty a buddy of mine used to come down and because he helped me open the restaurant before going right. to Australia. And he used to con James into giving him all the apples and the little bollocks would be making fucking cider all the time. <laughs> He's got oxtail and bal yeah. now and yeah, Mayo. Yeah. Paddy's a great yeah. guy, Paddy yeah, yeah. Mac- But yeah. um, we we used to say, right, Paddy, you're not, stop stealing my apples. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Like Sammy would break them down. And then every Sunday through, through apple season and maybe a wee bit ap- after apple season, you would always be a maybe an apple turnover or an apple crumble or an apple tart or a tart to tan, something that suited the apples and then an apple strudel or whatever it be, or I would use them in compotes. And then when they're gone, they're gone. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we got a we did we we boxed clever and we got a good bit out of a small enough area for a restaurant that was as busy as it was, you know. Yeah, and that probably brings us on to like I mean a number of things. I mean you you, you currently we're looking at I suppose challenging times with the with the situation in Ukraine and all the impacts it's having on food and, and the food providence. Um, have you have you noticed that the, the food has gone up in price? Well, definitely going up in price, you know. But I, I don't think that you know the the thing. And it's like anything, you know. Like the people doing the selling are very quick to latch on to the fact that oh, blame the diesel, blame Brexit, blame. I mean, the effects of Ukraine isn't going to be felt till next year. But sadly, we're already experiencing it because that's what purveyors do. That's what people do. They pump up the price of everything. The cost of doing the cost. It's greed, really, isn't it? Oh yeah, yeah. I think it's greed right now. I mean, if you were to really talk to the people in food production in Ireland alone and the UK and everybody chats about worrying. I mean, people are very quick to scare but you know, Ireland produces way more food than what it can eat. Do you, do you know what I mean? So we may have to adapt and we're going to have to do a lot of that for sure. Um, but it's like anything, if tomatoes go extortionate, would you stop buying them? Like, and then if you stop buying them, they have to bring the price back down. Like so there's definitely, you know, I think Ukraine, I could be wrong, but I definitely read somewhere as a twelve percent of the world's green or whatever. So there's no two ways about it. <laughs> Flour and this that, and the other and stuff and bread and all the derivatives of these ingredients are gonna go up. But people can only lose so much money for so long and not every restaurant owner. I mean, I saw a place in Kerry announce on Twitter that they were closing Pretty. in 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 June. Yeah. Imagine a restaurant in Kerry has closed on the on the thirtieth of June, first of July. 
That is a red flag. That is a red flag. I mean, imagine that they're not seeing light at the end of a tunnel to even go to September, October, put a wee bit of money in the coffers. Mm -hmm. But people are now only starting to get their first electricity bills and whatever. Somebody, I don't buy in Ireland right now, so I don't know. Like, I'd normally be able to tell you what a tomato costs or what a box costs. Mm -hmm. I met somebody a few weeks ago that said a box of tomatoes went up 15 euro. I mean, I remember when they were, a box was 16. So Jesus Christ, how much is it to make a salad mm -hmm. now? Mm -hmm. Someone else saying a box of chickens went up 30 quid. I mean, I remember when they were 90 cent each. Well, is it 25 and them black boxes mm -hmm. that you'd use for staff food or whatever, or maybe other people mm -hmm. use them for other stuff. But like, people will only, only want to pay so much when they go out for dinner as well. You'll always have somebody that maybe is happy to carry more cost than somebody else can carry. So their restaurant looks a wee bit more expensive than the other man's restaurant. So that restaurant starts getting quiet. This one starts getting busier. This one closes. But ultimately, people can only pay so much, Cyril. Mm -hmm. So I think it's the energy cost is the one that's the real big worry for a lot of people. I mean, they're, not, they're nearly not looking at the price of, of a tomato right now because... Their ESB bills have gone up a hundred percent, or whatever it'll be. Or their gas, or their and their gas, or whatever it is that you're using. I mean, if you go from three, two and a half, three, three thousand two hundred quid to seven thousand four hundred or seven thousand six hundred, you're like, Jesus. I mean, the the stress already that I'm going to say one hundred percent or ninety five percent of kitchens in Ireland and the world, but let's just talk about Ireland today are short staffed. You're there waking it up every day worried about service. And you do. Your 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 insides are sore, your mind is busy, especially if you're seniority or whatever to be, and you're worrying and you're thinking. And that's how you feel when you've got all the staff that you need. What corners do you now need to cut if you are down a guy? I mean, I had somebody from one of the, the most prestigious hotels in the country with one of the most exciting restaurants to come or about to open on holiday last week and the chef that was going to take over let him down on the first week of his holiday and two others followed so he lost three chefs a month out from opening what is going to be a very exciting beautiful beautiful restaurant that is heartbreaking and that is what's happening all my friends and all my peers everywhere and I know it'll be happening to me. I mean, I have a, I'm really lucky with a core group of people that I have in France. And, you know, they're in situ and, and, you know, they're looked after well. But I don't need a massive, massive crew. But, you know, I had an opportunity to work in a five-star hotel in Ireland over the last few years. I'd had a few offers and a place I would only just absolutely love to work mm -hmm. in. But I was like going, how? Like, how is Gary here? Like, we're recording in Carton House. Like, like, what's going through his mind worrying about business? Because it's one thing to have everybody and you're taking in all the business and you spend all this money and you have this unbelievable property. You want to be able to deliver them for guests. But if you don't have the manpower and you're stretching yourself thin, every day is a problem fixing. Mm -hmm. And the amount of chefs and food and beverage managers and waiters and waitresses mm -hmm. and everybody in this business right now, they're going to work really stressed really really stressed out it is fucking awful mm -hmm. you know and i don't know when it's going to change and if somebody gets a full complement of staff today it means that they've left one of their buddies in the lurch and they've mm -hmm. gone somewhere 
Mm-hmm. And what do you do? You don't want to hire somebody that's been working for your buddy. They're leaving them in May, June, July, whatever month. And like, but they're like, oh, well, they're going to leave me in a few months as well. So then you need to hire them. Beggars can't be choosers. It's a vicious circle. It's a very, very different world today mm-hmm. to back in the day. There's not enough people in the business. You know, I met with Minister Simon Harris recently about moving the culinary program in Athlone into the barracks in Longford. That would be a major boost to Longford. Get the, the colleges that we have are amazing. Like like what the gang are doing over at GMIT. Killy Beggs will be twinned up with, with Letter Kinney now and the mm-hmm. universities there all coming together. But, you know, we, we really, really, really need an unbelievable recruitment drive in hospitality. And I know every industry is maybe <clears throat> on their knees, but I only care about mine. But if you look at hospitality, it gets bad press. Yeah. And you talked earlier on there about, you know, your work environment out there and the pressure beyond them out there. And does that have to change or what has to change to encourage people? Yeah, but here's the thing, right, Cyril? People work on Monday to Friday and I only ever got to experience it, right? Mm-hmm. For, for maybe a few years recently. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe what I never knew, what it felt like to work Monday to Friday. Because, I mean, there's a lot of chefs in that corporate world and that's the life they choose. And, and you know, they're brilliant Ooh. guys. I mean, one they, they, they've got good jobs and different jobs. But I just always had worked at the hotel or fine dining in neck of the woods. But I was just like, Jesus Christ, like I can make plans. I can go here. I can go there. I can have weekends off. I can watch Finn Harps. I can go over to United every now and again. Ooh. I can put my children to bed. I, I have to say, like, I, I was one of these guys that, like, you know, I'm, you know, I work at the highest level and that's it. Like, and, but I nearly would have been better not knowing what a life was, but I did get a taste of it and it was, it was unbelievable. And I just thought, I mean, I, I have a great life anyway, and I had a great mm-hmm. life and I still have a great life now and I work hard at it. Um, but the Monday to Friday thing and having the nights off with children. It, it it was unbelievable the relationship with my children when I was telling them bedtime stories. It's unbelievable. And even now you could say I work in France, but in France it's not every day of the week. It's very high end, you know, very bespoke offering that you get at the Condor. People book it for three or four nights at a time. It's twenty five thousand a night to stay. It's all inclusive. People come. It is world, world class. But it's rare that you get people coming for very long. So I fly in. I look after guests. We do all the shopping, all the buying at the markets. We cook, we mind them, and then they leave, I leave. Mm-hmm. And when I'm in Ireland, I'm in Ireland, and Annette, whatever Annette needs and the kids needs, I'm there. When I'm gone, I'm gone. There's no gray area. And the, and the time away is short, and the time back can be okay. But it all balances itself out. My wife is very happy. My kids are more than happy, and it's, it's brilliant how it's working out. So the question going back to it about attracting people into the industry, this is the problem. People just associate Saturday nights and nighttime with fun and this and that and all the sport is on and all the good stuff is on at the weekends. Until the whole world starts doing stuff on a Monday day and a Tuesday day and a Wednesday night or whatever, I don't know what universe we live in that anybody can tell anybody that, look, we'll give you weekends off. We, most places don't have enough staff to give them weekends off. Mm-hmm. Everybody wants to eat out at nighttime because they work by day. There really is going to have to be a seismic shift. Now, COVID was one seismic shift in the habits of people. But you've seen how quick the airports have got busy again and how quick people are back to going away for weekends mm-hmm. and nights out. 
you know, they're working from home and now you can say, well, they can work from a hotel, they can work from here. They're not going to do that. And there's so many more opportunities for children to make money today than, than when you were going into the work industry and when I was going into the work industry. You ask my daughter now, she's eight years old, what she wants to be when she grows up. Sadly, she'll probably, buy, oh, I'm going to be a YouTuber. And you ask anybody from eight, nine, ten up into a certain age, mm. they all see all these people making all these money, all this money in different ways. And why would you want to go down a path that's a lot more difficult to make money and least of all make millions uh, or, or come into this world? And you could say that about accountancy, you could say that about being a doctor, about being a lawyer, about being a nurse, <clears throat> about being a guard, about being a painter, mm. about being a mechanic. There is just so many different options out there. I am a big advocate for the career. It's given me an unbelievable life. It's a life that no matter where in the world you go, I always used to say to Granny God rest, and no matter where I am in the world, if I need money, I'll go cook somewhere. Everybody needs to eat, and somebody will always need somebody that's good at cooking to go work mm. for them. And I always rationalized it, but people frowned upon me whenever I said I was going to be a chef. I was obviously very decent academically my brother's a financial controller for tato he's a mathematical mm -hmm. genius he used to say to me it used to annoy him that i was pretty nifty at school he studied hard i did fuck all i just <laughs> it, you know i mean i did a bit but i didn't yeah. maybe do as much as him because you know as i say well when i'm in school i listen because i want to play football when i go home right. i don't i i'm I absolutely laser focused on the teacher I'm not fucking wasting a minute in this classroom. And that's the way I was. I was like, if I'm going to be here, I can't play football. I'm listening to this shit so that I don't have to do loads of work when I go home. And that's how I live life. I'm like, what are you teaching me? I'm listening and I'm moving on. But look, it's, it's, it's a brilliant career. It is fantastic. It is definitely a different environment to work in now. Obviously, Katie McGuinness came out with it and I couldn't believe what I was reading yesterday when I read Katie McGuinness's piece. You know, whoever the fuck that is, I don't know. I mean, kitchens are loud and you have swearing or whatever, but this crack of lifting and hitting or whatever, it's it's mental. Yeah. I mean, that'll all come out in the, in the wash at some stage. Like it's, but most, like it's a, it is a great career. Like there's loads of really good people out there that everybody knows who they are that you can go work for. There's some unbelievable companies in Ireland. You can go the Kerry Global way. You can do the food science way. I mean, that's no good to me, but I do want mm. people in fine dining kitchens or whatever. But I've worked with Kerry Group on different things over the years. I see the opportunities of a world in food. But if you start with cooking and you do 10 or 15 years and you contribute to the, to the business and then you have your degrees now, which wasn't there in my day, and then you want to branch out or work for a gather and gather or work for a, for an Aramark or mm. another good company like mm. in that in that line, you want to work Monday to Friday, nine to five, but you've garnered all this knowledge at the highest end all over the world. It will carry you a whole career because mm. you'll be so knowledgeable and advanced and whatnot. And then maybe wind it down and go into the food science end because you will bring so much knowledge and so much. So you can definitely have that wave that contributes to the restaurant and hotel sector and, and bar sector and food and beverage sector. And then they have the skills to go on and make decisions and have that education behind them that'll bring them into Monday to Friday work or three day work or working from home work because mm -hmm. you can't mm -hmm. cook a dinner from home and everybody 
likes the idea of not having that option. I mean, mm. we don't have tons of that option in my world, but you know, it's it's a worrying time. But I think right now the big big focus, as I said to Minister Simon Harris recently when we had lunch, is you know. Put careers like being a mechanic or being a chef or being a hotel manager front and center on the CAOs. When they open the websites, take away the snobbery of people doing so many degrees that gets them nothing. There are so many degrees out there and people going to college for college's sake. Well, you're like, encourage them that, you know, people, a lot of, a lot of people, and especially in Ireland today, they frown on this type of work. They don't. You know, apprenticeships are not given. You know, when CERT was disbanded, I'm like going, like, there's the, the, the age of people that are able to fix things around the world is dramatically increasing. I think the average age of a construction worker in New York City is 56. Like, how old are people working in that world if that's what they're stuck at? You know what I mean? Like, that they're having people really old to get an average age of 56. It's going to be the same in our world. We need the young people going into it. We need them not to be frowned mm-hmm. upon when they want a world of apprenticeship mm-hmm. programs. Whether it be cooking or whether it be this or whether it be that, that's what we want and that's what we need. Because mm-hmm. you, you know, you're talking about you know, long time I said about a skill a skill shortage. You know, but look to wrap it up, Gary. How does Gary relax? And we're going to play golf today. Well, yeah, I am. The current champion of the Maynooth GAA. I know it's your club too, I think, is it? Yeah, so I won it with Connor Moore, Lawrence Kinlan, and Niall Carroll, my CEO at the Condor. Those boys have bowed out this year. They're all working today. So I'm playing with a few boys from Maynooth, you know. I'm going to hopefully retain my title. So look, today's a good day. I love golf. I'm absolutely brutal at it. (laughs) I love rallying. Um, getting into that hopefully my dream is to do the Donegal rally in a mark two by the time I'm 50 so I've six years to get the rally car and get, get, get sponsored get and ready. get it ready yeah. and uh, and then just yeah golf is probably where I'm at right now like yeah that's that's what I love to do to wind down yeah or muck about the garden at home you know so the future's looking bright for you anyway yeah hopefully yeah the condor is going from strength to strength like we're going to have a big year this year we developed four new holes last year and um, we've got a lot of good brand partnerships going into this year everybody that stayed so far since the start of the year rebook for next year mm. yeah it's all steam ahead really proud of where we're at and uh long may it last and hopefully i'm able to contribute a wee bit to ireland again and, and maybe delve my finger back into view my house by the end of the year beginning mm. of next year and i'll keep you posted on that yeah. development and uh put a nice good crew in there and see Longford come back on the map again, yeah. So the passion hasn't waned anything since. No, not a not a chance, not no way. Still still plenty of years left in the tank. Yeah, we'll leave it to that guy. Thanks a million. Thank Thanks. you. Thanks. We hope you enjoyed this issue. You can follow and subscribe to our channels with all our podcasts available on our website and on Spotify and YouTube. Bye for now.